Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, campaigning nonstop. Former President Trump today in New Hampshire after securing a key win in Iowa. How's the next primary race looking and could Nikki Haley surge ahead? Iris Tao reports. What do the results in Iowa mean and how are government officials reacting? Arian Pastar brings you what people across the U.S. are saying. And before heading to New Hampshire, Trump was back in a New York courtroom today to find out how much he'll have to pay in a second civil trial. It's being brought by the same person who won a similar defamation case against him last year. An Arctic blast brings a deep freeze to major cities across the U.S. What damage do the storms cause and what's in the forecast? Washington today launching another round of airstrikes targeting a Houthi missile facility. Plus, the U.S. Navy has intercepted a shipload of Iranian-made weapons bound for Yemen. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. Former President Trump today toggling between the courtroom and the campaign trail after securing a key victory in Iowa. His competitors now vying for another shot in New Hampshire. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has the latest on Trump's campaign. Former President Trump will be campaigning in New Hampshire tonight where he says a big crowd is waiting. But that's after he spent his morning and early afternoon at a courtroom in New York where a jury will decide whether he has to pay former magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll for defamation over denying her allegations about sexual harassment. Trump has denied any wrongdoing in that case and has said that he doesn't even know who Carroll is. Meanwhile, Trump this afternoon went on a posting spree on Truth Social saying this is another witch hunt, especially given the fact that it comes right after the Iowa caucus yesterday and just ahead of the New Hampshire primary set for next Tuesday. Meanwhile, in New Hampshire, recent polling has shown that Nikki Haley is eating into Trump's lead. But Trump actually won by a record margin here in Iowa last night, as we know, leading both Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley by some 30 points. So another win potentially in New Hampshire could really help Trump knock out the competition here and that could explain why Trump is campaigning in New Hampshire nonstop both rallying today as well as for the rest of the week. But his competitors including Governor Ron DeSantis are not letting up either. Here's what DeSantis was saying just today. Watch. Clearly Trump would still want. I get that. But I think it was irresponsible. I mean what's so hard to just wait for people to actually vote? Meanwhile, Nikki Haley sounding confident today that she could beat Trump in New Hampshire. Watch. He's in <laughs> single digits in South Carolina and single digits in New Hampshire. He's been invisible in both states. He is not my concern. I'm going after Trump. Meanwhile, Vivek Ramaswamy, who dropped out of the race last night and went on to endorse Trump, says he will be joining Trump at tonight's rally in New Hampshire. So while we might not see Vivek holding his own events in New Hampshire anymore, we might see him campaigning together with Trump as he's now trying to convince his base to vote for Trump. Back to you. And there will be no more Republican debate in New Hampshire this Thursday. ABC News announced they are canceling the event due to a lack of candidates. 
Four candidates previously qualified for the debate, former President Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Chris Christie. But then Christie dropped out of the race. Trump said he wouldn't take part in any of the debates. And Haley said she wouldn't participate without Trump. Haley said following the Iowa caucus that she would only debate Trump or President Biden, not DeSantis. After Trump's landslide victory last night, what do the results mean and how are people reacting? NTD's Arian Pastar brings you what officials across the U.S. say about Trump's victory. Two presidential candidates already dropped out after former President Trump's landslide victory in Iowa on Monday night. Vivek Ramaswamy and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. In his victory speech, Trump suggested others should do the same thing. I want to make that a very big part of our message. We're going to come together. It's going to happen soon, too. It's going to happen soon. Trump seems optimistic that he'll win the Republican nomination, and many would agree. Here is the Democratic governor of Illinois speaking about the results on Tuesday. Donald Trump now clearly established as the frontrunner, maybe likely to be the Republican nominee. And so that makes a clearer choice for people. Recognize that, and I've been saying this all along, that the Republican Party is the party of Donald Trump. Texas Governor Greg Abbott took to Twitter, writing, Trump wins Iowa by a bigger percentage than any Republican ever. It's over. Representative Lauren Boebert also took to Twitter on Tuesday, saying Trump won't just win the primary, he'll win the general too. And here's talk show host Tucker Carlson commenting on Trump's decisive victory. Donald Trump won decisively. At this point, it's hard to see how he's not the Republican nominee, because he didn't just win last night. He triumphed overwhelmingly by a historic margin. President Biden's campaign communication director on Tuesday called Trump the embodiment of the threat to democracy. And he added, Well, look, I, I think what you saw was turnout wasn't that high in Iowa. And what you saw was Donald Trump consolidate uh, the extreme MAGA base in Iowa. Um, the fact of the matter is uh, he is running and they are all these candidates are running on an agenda that's as dangerous as it is unpopular. Former President Trump is in New Hampshire now campaigning for the state's primaries. Arian Pastar, NTD News. More updates on Trump's legal cases. New York's top court is upholding the gag order against Trump in the civil fraud trial. The New York Court of Appeals today dismissed the appeal by Trump's legal team to remove the gag order. The court said there is no substantial constitutional question involved. The gag order barred Trump and his attorneys from making public statements about the courtroom staff. The trial wrapped up this month. Meanwhile, in the federal election case by special counsel Jack Smith, there is also bad news for Trump. The U.S. Court of Appeals for Washington, D.C. rejected Trump's petition. The former president was trying to stop Smith from accessing his Twitter feed. Smith is trying to determine when Trump used the Twitter app on his cell phone on January 6, 2021. Trump can still ask the Supreme Court to intervene. For the first time in almost two years, the nation's capital sees more than an inch of snow, shutting down D.C. schools and federal offices. Congress, however, is on a tight deadline with a government shutdown looming three days from now. NTD's Melina Weiskopf reports from the nation's capital.
Federal employees got an extended holiday here in Washington, D.C. with the snowy weather. The city recorded 3.6 inches of snow with some surrounding areas recording anywhere from 2 to 6 inches, leaving some areas on the roads slick. And these lower temperatures lingering overnight may keep this frozen snow around a little longer. This snowy weather has turned the White House's daily press briefing virtual and the House has delayed votes until tomorrow. But the Senate can't afford a snow day. That's because the first round of federal government funding runs out this Friday and the chamber usually takes longer to pass legislation than the House. Senators still moving ahead with a vote this evening on a continuing resolution. That is a resolution that will extend government funding for the next 40 days. This will be the third time that Congress has kicked the can down the road on funding during this fiscal year and the House will have to take it up after the Senate where it's sure to face some pushback from some conservative Republicans. Now this leaves Speaker Johnson no choice but to rely on Democrat votes to get it across the finish line, a move that cost former Speaker Kevin McCarthy his job. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Other major cities on the East Coast also broke a snow drought today. That's as large parts of the U.S. faced freezing temperatures that closed schools, caused power outages, and contributed to several deaths. Storms and frigid temperatures affected everything from air travel to NFL playoff games to Iowa's presidential caucuses. According to the National Weather Service, New York City's Central Park recorded more than an inch of snow on a single day for the first time since 2022. Philadelphia also ended its 715-day streak without snow. I was hoping for more. I could have done with a snow day. <laughs> but it's great. I mean, snow is always nice. A little over 100,000 U.S. homes and businesses were without power, most of them in Oregon, Texas, and Louisiana. The widespread outages started last weekend. Portland General Electric warned that the threat of freezing rain could delay restoration efforts. Schools were closed for students in several major cities. At least four people in the Portland area died, including two people from suspected hypothermia. Another man was killed after a tree fell on his house and a woman died in a fire that spread from an open flame stove after a tree fell onto an RV. In Wisconsin, officials said the deaths of three homeless people in the Milwaukee area were under investigation, but believe hypothermia was the likely cause. A Kentucky State Police helicopter rescued four campers stranded atop Courthouse Rock in the Red River Gorge area on Monday. They said it was one of the most dangerous rescues ever attempted in the gorge. Freezing rain and sleet are expected to continue across portions of the southeast. In the Pacific Northwest, ice storm warnings were in effect through Wednesday morning. Parts of the Cascades into the northern Rockies could see 15 to 28 inches of snow. Temperatures are expected to moderate midweek, but a new surge of colder air is forecast to drop south over the northern plains and Midwest, reaching the deep south by the end of the week. Chaos unfolding in the Red Sea. Washington today launching another strike targeting a Houthi missile facility. Meanwhile, the U.S. Navy has intercepted its first batch of Iranian-made weapons bound for Yemen. NTD's Sam Wong has the latest details. On Tuesday, the U.S. ordered another round of airstrikes against the Yemeni Houthis. They specifically targeted a cache of anti-ship missiles. This after the Iran-backed group claimed responsibility for a missile attack in the Red Sea, where a Greek-owned bow carrier was hit. No one was injured from the strike. The Houthis are now vowing to step up attacks in the region. 
The Yemeni armed forces will continue to prevent the navigation of Israeli ships or ships related to the Israeli enemy in both Arabian and Red Seas. Before this round of strikes was another bombing campaign spearheaded by the U.S. and the U.K., aiming to deter attacks by the Houthis. Since November, the Houthi forces have launched missile strikes on cargo ships in the Red Sea. The attack has forced some shipping companies to either avoid the trade route or pause operations. And meanwhile, a search and rescue is continuing after two U.S. Navy SEALs went missing off the coast of Somalia. According to the U.S. Central Command, both of them were involved in a secret operation that sees a boatload of Iranian-made weapons bound for Yemen. And two other countries have reportedly been targeted by Iran. In Pakistan, officials condemned Iran for the death of two Pakistani children after the regime said it launched an attack targeting a militant group called the Army of Justice. The group was founded in 2012 and it mostly operates across the border in Pakistan that have previously attacked Iranian security forces near the border region. And late Monday night, Washington condemned Iran over its strike on a northern Iraqi city. Local authorities said four civilians were killed in the attack. Sam Wong, NTD News. Coming up, the accused serial killer in the Gilgo Beach murders has pleaded not guilty to a fourth murder count. Prosecutors reveal new evidence that links the suspect to the victim's death. Convicted killer Alec Murdoch is back in court. Why are he and his lawyer pushing for a new double murder trial? A federal judge has blocked JetBlue's multi-billion dollar purchase of Spirit Airlines. Find out why the judge was concerned about the merger. And the world's most powerful people gather together at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. What exactly is the WEF? We'll have details on that and more when we come back. Welcome back. Accused serial killer Rex Hoyerman pleaded not guilty to a fourth murder count in connection with the Gilgo Beach murders. Investigators say a DNA test connected him to a hair found on a belt used to restrain the fourth victim. The suspect already faces charges for the murders of three other women. He has pleaded not guilty to those charges as well. The remains of all four women were discovered along a stretch of Long Island's Gilgo Beach in 2010. Hoyer remains in police custody. He is set to return to court next month. Attorney and convicted killer Alec Murdoch was back in court today for a hearing related to his push for a new double murder trial. Entity's Christina Corona has more on the story. Alec Murdoch, who was convicted of murdering his wife Maggie and youngest son Paul in 2021, appeared at the Richland County Courthouse for a pre-trial public status hearing Tuesday. Murdoch received two consecutive life sentences in March 2023, following a six-week trial. His lawyers argue that Colleton County Clerk Becky Hill engaged in jury tampering before they found Murdoch guilty of the double murder. They claim that she influenced the jurors by telling them not to believe his testimony and pressuring them to reach a guilty verdict. We've argued that uh, their uh, showing in their motion for a new trial is insufficient uh, based on the case law for an evidentiary hearing uh, because there is uh, on his face no uh, sufficient allegation of prejudice. 
Former South Carolina Supreme Court Justice Jean Toll decided the defense needs to prove that Becky Hill treated Murdoch's case unfairly. I have set an evidentiary hearing because I felt like we had to have some brackets on the time we will spend on this matter. Toll mentioned that she won't inquire about various allegations against Hill, such as misusing public funds and plagiarism in her book on the Murdoch case. Tuesday's conference comes ahead of Murdoch's hearing on January 29th. Murdoch is currently serving life imprisonment without parole. Christina Corona, NTD News. A federal judge blocked JetBlue's multi-billion dollar purchase of Spirit Airlines today. The judge outlined numerous concerns in his ruling, including increased fares for Spirit's customers who often rely on the airline's cheap prices. The Justice Department sued to halt the proposed deal last spring, arguing at the time the merger would result in fewer choices for travelers as well as higher fares. However, JetBlue claimed the merger would actually work to lower fares. JetBlue and Spirit both say they disagree with the ruling and are evaluating their next steps. The World Economic Forum's annual meeting is underway, where the most powerful people from all over the world gather together. What are they doing and what exactly is the World Economic Forum? NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. The world's most powerful people have gathered at Davos, Switzerland, for the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. World leaders, government officials, tech executives, NGOs, and business leaders arrive to network and discuss the world's problems. The World Economic Forum is an international nonprofit that aims to shape global political and industry agendas. Led by Klaus Schwab, a German engineer and economist who founded the organization back in 1971. Around 450 people attended the first meeting in Davos. In 2023, around 2,700. It was like one of the greatest experiences, not just about the venue and what it get, what it means to get to this to Davos uh, with all the snows and all the, the the environment, but also the opportunity to bump into some of the most powerful people or decision makers around the world. John Paul Laurent was invited to attend Davos back in 2020 to speak about his nonprofit called Unspoken Smiles, an organization aimed at fighting oral disease. At events like these, Laurent is able to network and build strong partnerships. You literally uh, next to you some of the most powerful and famous people, and you have the opportunity to, to pitch to them if you are ready and you really know what you want to do and accomplish from this event. The main theme of Davos 2024 is rebuilding trust in the future. Two key parts of that include dealing with artificial intelligence and climate change. People must pay thousands of dollars to become members. They paid a total of $42 million to go to Davos in 2023. The event also has its critics. Some say it doesn't do enough on climate change, pointing out that attendees fly to Davos on carbon-emitting private jets. Others say it promotes a socialist leftist agenda. The World Economic Forum denies this claim. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Credit card interest rates soared to record highs last year at an average of more than 20 percent. The result, a growing number of Americans finding themselves unable to pay off their debt. NTD's Andrew Thomas spoke with a senior industry analyst to discuss the latest survey of cardholders. 
A bank rate report published Monday found that almost half of credit card users owe interest. That's up from 39% who carried a balance month to month in 2021. Credit card balances fell early in the pandemic. People used stimulus to pay down debt. They were spending less for a while. The New York Fed says that balances fell 17% from Q4 of 2019 to Q1 of 2021. And that was the low point. Ever since then, it's been really a rocket ship upward. Credit card balances have surged 40% since the beginning of 2021. Bankrate found that almost 60% of those respondents have been in the red for at least 12 months compared to 50% in 2021. Around 40% of those surveyed said an emergency is the reason they're behind on payments. More than a quarter cited everyday spending. The typical household budget now costs about 20% more than it did two years ago. And that's just because these price hikes build off themselves. And even though inflation's lower now, prices are still going up and they're going up off a higher base. When it came to age groups, 55% of Gen X and 51% of Millennials reported credit card debt. 48% of Gen Zers surveyed said they owed interest. And 44% of baby boomers said they were in the hole as well. I think all of this adds up to credit card debt is a big deal across demographics. Men, women, different age groups, different income brackets, different parts of the country. Credit card debt is very common, and yet there's still a stigma around it. So is there any good news for Americans with credit card debt? A few silver linings. One is that there are a lot of steps you can take to pay it off. A 0% balance transfer card is my top tip. And these have remained surprisingly attractive and available, even in a rising rate environment. You can avoid interest for up to 21 months with cards like the Wells Fargo Reflect and the City Simplicity and the U.S. Bank Visa Platinum. Only 47% of respondents with credit card debt report having a strategy to pay off their balances. Rossman says the other 53% need to face the issue head on. I know it's hard to think about this stuff, but we need to come up with a plan. It's just not sustainable to make minimum payments month after month when you're talking about this much debt at this high of an interest rate. That way, cardholders can actually enjoy rewards like cash back and airline miles instead of worrying about their balance. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, former President Trump makes history with his performance in Iowa. Find out why Trump's spokesperson says his opponents are terrified. And it's all about the economy. That's what our guest says about the top issue in the Iowa caucuses, as well as in the general election. Hear more about his analysis after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Former President Trump is campaigning in New Hampshire after scoring a historic victory in the Iowa caucus. Vivek Ramaswamy and Aza Hutchinson dropped out of the race following Trump's win. On the way to New Hampshire, Trump appeared in a New York courtroom for the second trial of the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. A jury has just been selected. They will decide how much Trump has to pay Carroll. The U.S. ordered another round of airstrikes targeting a cache of missiles owned by the Houthis in Yemen. The Iran-backed group vowed to step up attacks in the region. 
An Arctic blast brought frigid temperatures throughout the U.S. Extreme weather conditions forced schools to close in several major cities and knocked out power for tens of thousands. Joining us to react to Trump's historic performance in Iowa last night, we have a special guest tonight, the former president's very own spokesperson, Liz Harrington. Liz Harrington, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Great to be with you. Liz, several media called Iowa for Trump very early in the night. Now, Trump did leave Iowa with 51 percent of the vote, and the margin to DeSantis was 30 points. Many were saying he wouldn't get past that historic 12-point mark. What do you make of the historic night last night? Well, it certainly shows that this is far bigger than just a campaign. It is the greatest political movement our country has ever seen. President Trump shattered the previous record of 12 points, more than doubling it. And it was really across all demographics, all types of voters uh, who just want to see their country saved. They know President Trump is the best equipped to do that, uh, to get our economy back, to secure the border, which has been completely destroyed, to stop the endless wars, all these fundamental issues that speak to the heart of trying to make America great again. And he, he was very magnanimous last night and spoke to these issues and talked about coming together, which I think it's far past time. Listen to what the voters are telling you and uh, let's unify and take the fight to the corrupt government that is trying to steal away our country. On that note, Trump is facing a slew of legal battles, including some states that want to remove the former president from the ballot. Now, how do you see Iowa's victory last night potentially impacting how Republicans will vote in the primaries to come? Well, I think last night is further proof of exactly why they are so terrified of President Trump. That's why they're trying to take him off the ballot. Because look, when you have paper ballots and same day voting and you count it in public, President Trump crushes every other opposition. And it's just clear the people are with President Trump. That's why they've thrown all of these lawless indictments at him, trying to throw him in jail. That is the real threat to our constitutional republic. And I think this will only carry us further uh, in momentum to all these other prim early primary states. Uh, President Trump is clearly the best positioned to take on the fight to the establishment. He's already proven himself with his historic first term. The second term is going to be even, even better. On that note, NBC is reporting that, quote, a loose-knit network of public interest groups and lawmakers are, quote, quietly devising plans to try to foil any efforts by Trump to expand presidential power, including with the military. Now, what does this say about the likelihood of Trump winning and becoming president? I think it says it all. I think it shows how terrified they are. These are the same bad actors who cooked up the Russiagate hoax and tried to steal an election back after President Trump won in 2016 and interfere in the peaceful transfer of power. These are the same bad actors. And they're, of course, getting the band back together. They've never really stopped after they spied on President Trump's campaign. They tried to sabotage uh, the list goes on and on. And of course, the lawfare we've seen now, they're not going to stop their machinations, but we're not going to stop fighting for our country. There is nothing that's going to stop President Trump from running and winning back the White House. 
And now earlier you mentioned Trump's message of unity and his magnanimous speech. Now we did see Vivek Ramaswamy suspend his campaign and go on to endorse Trump at the end of it. How likely are we to see Vivek in a cabinet position in a potential Trump administration? Well, that's probably a little bit early to say, but President Trump was very happy to get his endorsement. I mean, he ran a good race. He was at nothing and ended up at 8%. But, you know, Vivek's a smart guy. He saw the writing on the wall. There's no path to the nomination. The other candidates should see the same thing because they spent far more money and got nowhere. Uh, so I think, you know, Vivek is smart and he saw what, what took place last night in such historic fashion. He wants to listen to the people. And, and we're very pleased that he put his support behind President Trump. Ms. Harrington, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The economy proved to be a key issue for Iowa caucus goers. Joining us now to discuss how each of the candidates did on the economy and how it will play out in the general election, we have Jim Nels. He is an economic analyst and supply chain consultant. Jim Nels, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. We just saw Trump come out of Iowa with a massive lead, 51% of the vote. Now, the economy and border were top issues for most voters, three out of four, according to exit polls. Now, how much do you see these two issues playing into why Trump was dominating? Well, I tell you, he dominated. He was like Mike Tyson in his prime, just destroying the competition in a matter that really wasn't even fair if you looked at it. The the record that he set with 51% of the vote, beating the number two person by 30 points, more than doubling Bob Dole's record that Bob Dole set back, I believe it was in 1996. And it showed that America wants a president who's going to put Americans first. They want someone who's going to be concerned about our border, not the border of Ukraine. And they want to bring our economy back to what it was during the Trump presidency. If you look at the, the economy under Trump pre-COVID, it was humming along like a well-oiled machine. And then all of a sudden now, that really nice well-oiled machine has a bunch of dents in it. Uh, it hasn't had, a, hasn't had an oil change in quite some time. And it's not running very well. What we'll see another Trump presidency is that he'll get the economy back on track by doing a number of things. He'll unleash America's energy potential and make us energy independent once again. He's going to get more Americans back into the workforce. If you look at the last jobs report, uh, we had lost over 600,000 Americans from the workforce from November to December of 2023. They just said, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm not going to do it. He's going to get them back in there. And he's going to unleash the power of American businesses to create new jobs, not doing what we're seeing in the current administration, which is just filling the jobs that were lost during COVID. And I think the last thing that we're going to see with the economy is that you're going to have the Americans start to think again like we were thinking in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, which is we can do anything. And that spirit's been lost now, but you saw it come back again last night in Iowa. On that note, polls from a week ago across racial groups show that econ the economy is a top priority. Even among young voters from a poll from three weeks ago, the economy is still a top priority there. Given that, how much will the general elections result hinge on this issue of the economy? I go back to 1992 and James Carville when he said, it's the economy, stupid. And it still is the economy, stupid. If you're sitting around your kitchen table trying to figure out which bills you're going to not pay at the end of the month because you don't have enough money, you don't want to hear 
a president tell you how good things are. You don't want to hear a talking head who never leaves the Washington bubble tell you that, no, you just don't understand how well the economy is doing. If you can't afford your grocery bill, your heating bill, your rent, and to put gas in your car, guess what? You're going to vote for change. Now, you did lay out part of Trump's plan for tackling, say, the current economic state. Now, have other candidates laid out a viable plan to tackle the economy, or have we really only heard from Trump? You've really only heard from Trump about how to fix the economy. Ramaswamy talked about it a little bit, but his is all about decoupling from China, which makes a lot of sense, but that would, in the short term, hurt the economy, not help the economy. Trump is the only one that's laid out a plan. Nikki Haley has pretty much just talked about all the countries that she wants to bomb, and all DeSantis has really done is said Florida, Florida, Florida over and over again. And he did a good job in Florida, but it did not translate to the national scales, especially when you consider how much money they spent per vote. Trump only spent $340 per vote in Iowa, where DeSantis spent $1,700 and Haley spent $1,800 per vote. So it shows that you don't have to spend a lot of money if you have a message that resonates with the American people. America first and fixing the America's economy is what resonates with, with the people right now. Jim Nels, thank you so much for your time. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Coming up, traditional artwork is on display. NTD is hosting the sixth international figure painting competition in New York City. Stay tuned to take a look at some of the paintings. And in college football news, a week after winning the national championship, Michigan's Jim Harbaugh could be on the move. Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we return. Welcome back. Traditional oil painting on display at NTD's sixth international figure painting competition in New York City. This year's exhibition features over 60 paintings from more than 50 artists worldwide. Let's take a look. After more than a year of preparation, the sixth international figure painting competition hosted by NTD brought together over 100 artists from four continents. After careful selection from the judges, more than 60 pieces from over 50 artists were chosen for the finalist exhibition. The art is currently being exhibited at the Salmagundi Club in New York City. The motivation behind this oil painting is seeing the citizens of Hong Kong willing to make a choice between good and evil for the sake of Hong Kong's freedom and their own will. Zhang Kunlun is one of the judges and also a renowned sculptor. He says the competition has an important mission. This competition showcases the traditions of divine culture, and that's what we want to do, to express truth, goodness, beauty, purity, and brightness. Richard Yin is the deputy director of the NTD competition series. Through our joint efforts, we can help elevate humanity's realism art to its peak. As one of the top realism oil painting competitions in the world, the competition promotes the traditions of pure and beautiful oil paintings and has received high praise from artists worldwide. I think for every artist, an honor to be part of this event because, you know, you see the quality of the paintings and also the meaning everybody took so much effort and worked on themselves so hard, I think. If you want to reach this level, you have to put a lot of effort and dedication into your work. The award ceremony will take place on January 18th and will be free for the public. The paintings will be on display until January 19th. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the first round of NFL playoffs is over, but looking ahead to next weekend, what stands out to you? 
Yeah, Buffalo, Kansas City stands out for sure. This will be the third time in the last four years four years these two have met in the postseason. And but it's the first time this will be played in Buffalo. And believe it or not, this will be Patrick Mahomes' first ever playoff road game. And he's won three he's been to three Super Bowls already, winning two of them. In any case, these two had an exciting first two matchups. The last one might never be topped. Four lead changes in the final two minutes of regulation. I mean that's on a short list of best playoff games ever. Now the other AFC matchup, it's at least intriguing because we're not sure what to make of either team after the Ravens lack of recent playoff success and the Texans you know, lack of success of any kind. So it's really kind of gone under the radar. Now the freezing weather has been the talk of these playoffs so far, but lost in the shuffle were the quick exits by Dallas and Philadelphia. How does that affect the NFC field? Yeah, I mean, the Cowboys lost was unpredictable to most, maybe, at least not to the odd, odds makers. Uh, but they are very tough to figure out in the postseason. You know, their home loss to Green Bay gave the Packers as many playoff wins at AT&T Stadium as the Cowboys have themselves, two. You know, I was probably more surprised by Philly's loss last night, though. I know they faltered down the stretch. I think they lost five of their last six. All grant they had won a number of close games in a row, which, is, which can be fickle. But I thought the playoffs would kind of be a reset for them, but it, it turns out it really wasn't. In any case, their losses really up, opened things up for San Francisco. They play Green Bay, who's looking a lot better. <clears throat> the other matchup, Detroit-Tampa Bay, that's looking good. I think I like Detroit in that one. I think they are uh, San Francisco's toughest remaining hurdle. Well, now elsewhere in the league, the Associated Press is reporting that Jim Harbaugh interviewed with the L.A. Chargers about their coaching vacancy, yet he is still Michigan's coach. Is this an unusual circumstance? Well, it's probably an awkward circumstance anyway. I mean, I can't imagine it helps recruiting during this crucial period should he decide to stay as Michigan's coach. It's certainly assuming less likely that he will, though the AP is also reporting Michigan has a record offer should he decide to stay. But this is actually not unusual for Harbaugh. You know, there were reports he interviewed with Carolina and Denver last year and Minnesota the year before. Of course, he previously coached for San Francisco for four years become, before coming to Michigan. Now, he's also reportedly hired an NFL agent, so a lot of signs are pointing to him leaving. It would seem uh, Michigan is kind of in a limbo right now while he decides. Well, now shifting gears to the NBA, reigning MVP Joel Embiid was asked Monday about the league's new rule that is a 65-game minimum to be eligible for postseason awards. Why is the league now mandating this? You know, it's part of the whole effort to encourage players and teams not to rest their star players. It's a problem that's been growing for like the last couple of decades. The league actually released a study last week that showed that star players missed an average of 10 games per season in the 80s and 90s. That that number has jumped all the way to 24 this decade. You know, it's part of an effort to keep players rested for the playoffs so teams and players, you know, like it. But the league doesn't because fans, you know, they're not going to be happy paying hundreds of dollars for tickets to see their favorite players sit on the bench, of course. So this season, teams are being disciplined for resting healthy starters, and I really think this rule is to incentivize players to play as well. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.